You are listening to a podcast of Ice and Fire, episode 233 for the week of September 2nd, 2018. Welcome back to the longest running podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's The Song of Ice and Fire series and occasionally HBO's Game of Thrones. As usual, this is Amin and I'm joined by a special a panel today. Is there a secret order? No. <laughs> <laughs> by VOK Supremacy, which ranks in VOK. <laughs> seat to Duncan. Duncan's high up, isn't he? Yeah, yeah Duncan's highest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess I'll go first. Hey, this is Duncan, also known as Valkyrist on the forums. This is Zach, also known as Alias on the forums. This is Bill, known as Mr. Corb on the forums. And this is Bing, Shushan on the forums. And Bing only speaks last because of the search engine. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> One day, Microsoft. Yeah, that's right. So I just wanted to, to do a little special episode because it's nice to do episodes on subtopics. And I had read an article recently called Game of Tropes, The Orientalist Tradition in the Works of George R. R. Martin by uh, Matt Hardy uh, from Deakin University, Australia. And he's not the first person to write or talk about the issue of Orientalism in the work, but he's the first that I've seen that's actually written a full article on it. So I thought that's an interesting time to talk about this article in depth. And that's why I wanted to get the panel here. Before we get into it, I do want to mention, I disagree with a lot of this article, but it doesn't mean we can't still discuss it. And I think it's an issue that should be discussed from the angle of an open discussion. Like A lot of times things like Orientalism, unfortunately, are taken to an extreme where they just shut down discussion. And I want to have an open discussion here, the opposite of that. So it's, it's a two-part article. The first part has an, kind of an introduction or summary of what, what's the concept of Orientalism. And I'm just wondering, you guys, if, if it's accurate or what you think of that summary. So the, the introduction part basically just points out a bunch of things about, I mean, this introduces the book, which I don't know at this point how much introduction you need for the book. So, okay, so for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, the idea of Orientalism comes from the book titled Orientalism by Edward Said, who is a, a literary scholar, who and he, he himself was Egyptian. And this concept specifically refers to the way in which the West people or writers, artists, scholars have portrayed the East in a specific way that doesn't really that is sort of a, has an exotic picture that paints an exotic picture of the East or basically non-West that's that has very little to do with the actual reality of what's going on in those areas. And I mean it's now regularly assigned reading in colleges. I think. I mean, I I have not read the whole book ever, but I've read the introduction <laughs> chapter, or the main of that of that book, maybe four or five, five times now. I have, I own this book. My mom owns this book, so <laughs> I don't know what everyone else's experience is with this book, though, or this idea is, though. I think we covered it for like one week in my honors program at university, so I'm I definitely right. don't know much about it. But yeah, the general gist is that. European historians and artists and various political organizations would paint the East as inherently exotic and backwards and stagnant and crumbling in contrast with the West, which was painted as familiar and developed and rational and progressive. And I guess the analogy that's often used is that civilization advances with the sun. So it rises with in the East and it sets in the West. So Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that Europeans didn't necessarily weren't necessarily in awe of a lot of these Eastern civilizations, but they considered them past civilizations that had reached right. some apex. And Orientalism, and it's depicted in art as much as it is it is in political thought. So it reaches various, you know, a, a wide discourse. But it was often used as a rationalization for colonization. It was, you know, we mm-hmm. have to go and save these people from themselves. They can't govern themselves. They're falling apart. That kind of thing. Right. And it all and a lot of the sort of the portrayal is sort of a very static image. I think the specific focus of this article is on various fantasy slash fantasy literature slash Hollywood movies, which is where he brings in later on Game of Thrones slash The Song of Ice and Fire. He talks about the Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm. uh, various sort of um, iterations of the Arabian Nights or the Assassin's One Nights. Um, yeah yeah so in this case not so much this is not so much sort of the things like kipling which is immediate justification of 
colonization would be used to for in the justification colonization, but things sort of more like repeating a lot of the stereotypical stereotypes and cliches that has mm-hmm. that was created during those periods. Yeah, like the impetus of Orientalism is perhaps dissipated to somewhat, but a lot of the tropes are preserved in things like right. fantasy, fantasy literature and mm-hmm. and you know swashbuckling or these throwbacks throwbacks to these swashbuckling adventure things like Indiana Jones, um, yeah. all the way up to all the way up to fantasy. I mean, Martin is often described as you know deconstructing or unpacking a lot of the fantasy tropes. But this guy's arguing he actually indulges in a lot of those stereotypes as much as he challenges them. Yeah. So just to give some context on what some of those tropes are, the author does kind of pull out a couple of quotes from the the, the original um, writing from Said here. I'll just mm-hmm. I'll just read these out just so people can get a sense of what those are. So Said describing it as such Orientals or Arabs are thereafter shown to be gullible, devoid of energy and initiative, much given to fulsome flattery, intrigue, cunning and unkindness to animals. Orientals are inveterate liars. They are lethargic and suspicious and in everything oppose the clarity, directness and nobility of the Anglo-Saxon race. And there's this, you know, next piece on kind of the sexual fantasy in this aspect of what what the uh, Western view of the East is, where it's harems, princesses, princes, slaves, veils, dancing girls and boys. The Orient was a place where one could look for sexual experience unobtainable in Europe. Readers and writers could have it if they wished without necessarily going to the Orient. So the you know, the author of this article kind of uh, calling this out in fantasy fiction. Uh, he's obviously, you know, if you heard all that, there's probably some connections you could immediately make to some of the portrayals that we see in A Song of Ice and Fire. He also calls out some other stuff. You know, you guys mentioned some of them. Obviously, uh, you know, Robert E. Howard's Conan is one that he pulls out. He also yeah. uh, points out the uh, the Easterlings in J.R. Tolkien's, obviously, uh, Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he mentions Robert Jordan, uh, Wheel of Time, and Robert E. Feist, David Eddings, uh, Steve Donaldson. Those are some of the names that he mentions. And basically makes the case that, you know, despite the fact that these are fantastical situations, they are kind of still reinforcing and supporting tropes of a, of a sort of, you know, real the real world Western Eastern uh, kind of binary that that Orient being the East and the uh, the Occident, I think it's called. Uh, for the yeah. West. The term Orient is, is pretty broad. I mean, this article focused on Middle East, but I think it's definitely gone all the way to China, Japan, anything non-West, right? Yeah, yeah the, the way it was originally framed was basically just West and East. Occident mm. being so Occident and Orient, basically the it's us and other. Mm. That's that's the frame. That's that's the framework. Mm. Yes, where us is kind of the privileged of the binary, and other is the inferior in all ways, the 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 bad. To we're, not that, we're not even necessarily inferior or bad, but just so much as it is the thing that's over there, right. and it is it, we are we are ever developing, ever changing. We. Mm. We 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 are di- we have all these diverse things going on with us. Those guys are static. They're always like that. And and whenever we go back to it, they're still going to be like that. Yeah, and that I mean that's the other or the stranger is a figure right. that appears in literature in psychoanalysis. It is this figure which we invest with all, with all of the things that we see as antithetical to us. So what we see, how we identify ourselves, is is the antithesis of how we identify the other. Um, but you can see in that, you know, maybe energies that we consider forbidden, you know, sexual energies that we place into the other. But then in in so doing, we kind of fetishize the other. Yeah. So I feel like we have a pretty good framework of what Orientalism is. And I don't really disagree with the summary there and the many works that follow into the parts that I have concern with. To what degree does George's work fall into that trope? Because the, the thesis of the article is basically that he's no better than anyone else in this tradition. Like, he fits into it. And I'm not sure that there may be parts that I agree with and parts that I don't. So I think we can go in depth kind of through the second part of the article if we're okay with that. Okay. The first thing he says when he gets there, he's talking about the Starks, for example, being in the North and the most honorable. And straight off the bat, I don't agree with that. I mean, Ned himself is more of an Aaron than a Stark, some people say, right? And if you look at the Stark's history, that's pretty dark. And then you have the other northern people like Bolton. I don't see anything inherently honorable to the north compared to other areas, if you look at it in depth. I mean, I think it's more the way that Martin presents the dichotomy between Westeros and Essos, maybe is what he's critiquing. I mean, I definitely think that 
the more you learn about the Westerosi families, the more gray that morality becomes. But I think the way it's set up, Westerosi society is, it's certainly a very brutal society, but it's more historically familiar to our conceptions of medieval reality, whereas Essos, at least in the first three books, feels a lot more in line with high fantasy. Um, it feels increasingly weird and unmoored from the permanency of Westeros, as though, you know, anything could happen at any moment. We get, you know, in the first book, we get Mary, the Merry Maz do a ceremony, the birthing of the dragons, then Karth and the House of the Undying. It feels like magic is much more explicit here. And we definitely get magic mm -hmm. in Westeros, but it often seems to come from Essos. So we get Melisandre coming from Essos and introducing uh, magic into Westeros. Um so it seems yep. like uh, that dichotomy of the, the the mystical exotic East is is sort of something that's exists in the East, but it's coming across and poisoning Westeros in some way. Well, and it's again, it's not about good or bad or even honor versus not honorable. Like some of the worst characters in the novel series are present in Westeros, like people like Joffrey and the Boltons. Those guys are all, but. And and there's plenty of really nice people in Essos, but that that's not the I guess the point. The point is so much is people like Dario with the, his weird beard, people like what the, the magician uh, Payapri with his the, with his weird magic, uh, like like Duncan said, the uh, Melisandre, and the the weird religion that people are unfamiliar with coming over. And also there's sort of a lot of, I think one of the emphasis of this article was the idea of practice of slavery. Slavery is yeah. one of the key focuses of the article, but he underestimates that is far more widespread in Essos than he says. There's certain places that it's not there, but it's a worldwide right. industry. And, and Danny is sending shockwaves through it. Like that's being felt throughout Essos, what she's doing. Well, yeah. And by the idea of, of Danny being a, sort of a western character going to being in the east and then emancipating hmm. slaves sort of the, the idea i mean i she was a slave think, herself keeping in mind well right? you like, know yeah but so i think the the problem with this article one first i have plenty of problems with this article the first the first problem with this article is that it conflates the tv show with the novel yes. series pretty <laughs> significantly that's the biggest mistake and then it says like oh george was heavily involved in the tv show so yeah that's the footnote like well I, well that that's that she doesn't take into account the fact that george's involvement with the tv show gets lesser and lesser over time yeah uh, and i have no idea what george's creative input is when they filmed the last scene of season i think season three in which danny is being hurled around giving she's she, she's doing uh she's crowd crowd yeah, surfing crowd surfing yeah. that that image was so because the point is the slaves are supposed to be from all backgrounds right but, but yeah. the extras they had there that wasn't demonstrable right so then that whole savior thing was i mean many people were talking about this so this is not the first article to talk about it but no, you no keep in mind that that's the tv show and the two have to be separate and you can critique both but just don't mix them together because they're two separate things yeah and, and i think uh, the reason that essos in the books at least feels like a bit a bit more mystical and a bit more magical is because it takes place primarily through danny's eyes and she is a child who's been raised you know by her brother to disdain the east and glorify the west or the, the westerosi so it does feel a bit fairy tale but i think you know in book five we get more of a sense of the the nitty-gritty sort of politics of the continent as we see through characters like eyes like Tyrion's. um and he does actually challenge this notion that the the westerners are somehow better than the easterners when he's when another character makes the point that you know servants in westeros are essentially slaves they're they're indentured servants they they have none of the rights they can be killed on on the you know the bizarre whims of their lords um so that dichotomy is is challenged you know in the later books um but i think in the early books it does feel a bit more fairy tale like well the early books are all from westeros point of view i mean martin uses the the character pov and the characters yes. themselves as the article says of course will will have orientalist views that's, that's the whole point well uh, yeah but I think one of the problems, maybe, and I'm taking his whoever this person's position is in this, is why are every single character, why exactly. is every single yes. perspective exactly. character in the, in a novel, point of view character yeah. in the novel, a Westeros person? 
I think yeah, that's the strongest been. argument that you can make uh, in favor of what the, the author is kind of claiming here is that you're right. There is no character in the series that comes from Essos that has a POV. Um, well, and, except, and for when one, you're, except for one now. Except for one now. Melisandre has one. Oh, and okay. well, um, one chapter. Right. <laughs> one off. One chapter. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the guy from uh, Novos? Um, the Axe Man? Yeah, Dorian Martell. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, but he's not even an Essos at the time, right? So I mean, he does, well, he does, it's he does the point. The discrepancies, like the differences, right. like he's yeah, so, to... yeah, but he's almost a shell. He's almost an empty shell who just remembers yeah. becoming a slave and then being this robotic soldier. So it's 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 almost doing the Orientalist work for him. Exactly. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I broke your point off, Zach. Yeah, just to just to you know wrap it up. You know, the majority of our perspective, uh, you know, by and large, is a very Western one. And when we're talking about, as you said earlier, being this idea of familiar versus unfamiliar, you know, us versus them, um, I versus other, uh, when you don't really have a true POV of the other side, I think that that really makes the case, right, that we don't really see things from the ESO side um, and in that way they are the other. Yeah, and I think I would agree with that because he's presenting the Orientalist, Orientalist rather mindset the same in a similar way that he's presenting a patriarchal or a sexist or misogynistic attitudes in the characters. But in that sense, at least he shows the points of view of men and women, female, male and female characters. Whereas, as you say, he doesn't show the viewpoint of the the people from Essos to any real degree. Well, you don't even have to imply that it's a Western story. I mean, Martin himself has been asked, I think, is are there going to be more Essos points of view? And he's like, well, no, this is a story about Westeros, right? So that's his choice in it's a story about Westeros. The question is then, should it be more about Essos? Martin's experience is in Western history. Like, he doesn't know much about the East. So should he be writing more about the East or should he be writing about what he knows about? I'm surprised the author didn't bring up Dawn because I feel like Martin was trying to challenge or critique some of that Orientalist stereotyping. Dawn is very much Orientalized, if that's a word, uh, to a large degree. We get, you know, the famous Dornishman's Wife song, which depicts, you know, Dornish women as very sensuous and Dornish men as very volatile. And I guess we see that stereotype to some degree with um, Oprah and Martell, although you could argue he's playing up that stereotype. But once we actually get the viewpoints from the people in uh, Dawn, we get, we realize that there's actually more shades of detail and complexity. Doran Martell is obviously very unlike the stereotype that we get of the Dornish. Ariane, to some extent, plays up the sensuousness. But once we get inside her head, we actually realize there's a lot more complexity. There's a lot more self-doubt. There's a lot more reflection once she, once her, her mission fails. Quentin, famously, is just like nothing. He can't live up to that Dornish ideal of the volatile masculine um, and all that. So I think, to some extent, uh, that's where Martin was trying to challenge or critique some of that orientalist um, stereotyping i think you've just pointed out why it wasn't mentioned <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well he does basically. he does mention he does mention it Dorn, but it, not yeah. in detail like he mentioned yeah, a little right. bit and then but then says oh the main problem in essos but i mean yeah he, he, that's right you do get pov in dorn and i mean ultimately dorn is quite popular in the fandom uh, when it's looked at in depth right We've, and, but it's not that it's everything's good about dorn either it's balanced you get a mix of characters we need to ascertain what exactly is the point of this article because yeah. that's that's actually my main problem with this article. Because oh, I don't know what the point of this article is. Yeah, that's what I felt too. Uh, are the Orientalist cliches, uh, images, etc.? Of course. But I that was that is not. I did not need to read this article to know that. I I read the novels. They're pretty obvious to me. Um, and I think this article does makes a, a lot of the same problem that a lot of many articles. That in, in many academic articles have is basically you you take it you take a theory a pot, the uh, Orientalism pretty old by now but I guess you br- and then you bring it to to a, a area of study that hasn't experienced this theory much that people haven't used this theory much I guess in this case fantasy literature people have, there's not that much academic studies on fantasy literature and that's not true but. Okay, in this case, Game of Thrones is popular now, so let's apply Orientalism to Game of Thrones and see what we get. There are there are Orientalist attitudes in Game of Thrones, yes, and that's it. Yeah, I think if you his his uh, critique is much more apparent in the show than in the books yeah, because if yes. you look at the show representation of dawn it is absolutely an orientalist you know oh, these yeah. people are sex crazed 
idiot maniacs. Yeah. Just yeah. They actually do mess the everything up. <laughs> then they're done with. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they're disposable. They're just they're just um, yeah, set dressing, titillation, gratuitous violence and sex, and then we're done with them. They've served their purpose. We can write them off. Yep. So they're completely utilitarian. Um, unlike the books, which does try to, to go into their characters and understand and I, where they're coming from. Yeah. And so, yeah, this article, there's a lot of gotcha. There's a lot of, oh, yeah, hey, gotcha. I see that you have some Orientalist images in your TV show slash popular TV show slash fantasy series. Okay, yes. But then what What do you want, what, want us to do with this information? Do you want – there to be less of this? Do you just do you want to have a, some sort of discussion, a greater discussions about fantasy literature with this? He just sort of pointed out, and and then he was done with it. So I kind of feel like there wasn't that much of an argument, other than yes, there's Orientalism in Asylum of Ice and Fire stuff. But it, it may not be as obvious to the common person as as to, to you guys who have, have done reading and research. Sure. Yeah, area, that's right? well, yeah, that's my experience with this article. It's, I think this article would be a good fit. I do agree. It's a little bit of a shallow analysis, but. You know, if you wanted to kind of engage uh, a young audience on like some of the ideas around post-colonialism, imperialism, um, and all and all that, it might be a way to kind of access that. Um, I guess with yeah. people that are fans of the show and the and the books. My filter for that most of this is the books, mm-hmm. and I think the strongest place where you can make the kind of Orientalist trope case, or even taking it a step further, further the kind of imperialist mm-hmm. situation that's going on in A Song of Ice and Fire, you know, is in Slavers Bay. Yeah is with Daenerys. Obviously, you know, I was reading all those, uh, the, I was reading that quote earlier with all those kind of tropes and depictions. You can kind of see all of that most clearly in Slaver's Bay. It certainly feels like the most strange and unsettling and mysterious and, uh, and un, you know, place that uh, is uh, most distinct, it feels like, from the Westeros, from our, our you know, perspective that we have. Uh, it does have, it does have, you know, a higher level of sensuality and all those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately, it, it's not. You can't really argue that Daenerys, when she arrives there, is doing anything else than embarking on a uh, imperialist colonial project. Uh, that that is her intention. Uh, you know, not, it's not how it starts out, but that is what it becomes. She is going to take control of this place, and she's going to make it better. You know, going back to the beginning of what we were talking about, that is the kind of west. That is the kind of Western point of view in this in this uh, imperialist perspective is that we're going to go to you and we're going to civilize you. We're going to make you better. In this case, we're going to free your slaves and we're going to make this a better place. Now, I think the opposite side um, that I think kind of complicates it. I don't think it fully, you know, absolves these aspects. Is that it's pretty clear uh, by the end of A Dance with Dragons that Daenerys's uh, her colonial project has failed to say the least. It's and you can make the case that this is almost a sort of deconstructionist post-colonial kind of you know viewpoint on it, where it's trying to make the case that yes, colonial projects, imperialist projects don't fundamentally don't work, and, and as they did not for Danny. That's fundamentally where the conflation of the TV show with the novel is highly problematic when you're trying to make this case, because the TV show is completely lacking of any nuance. It's basically uh, it's basically Daenerys is good. You're supposed to like Daenerys. Uh, ultimately, she wins, and she, her ideas are always good. Whereas the novels, well, well, the problem is the novels. We don't know what happens next. That's right. It's still a work in progress. Yeah, just it is. Is somebody eating their microphone right now, or just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wondering what that's somebody munching on it. There's alternatives. <laughs> yeah, I think we're getting some uh, feedback on on your mic, Duncan. Oh, sorry. <laughs> is it okay? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Oh, oh no. there it's back. <laughs> oh, sorry. Stop chewing on your mic, Duncan. I know <laughs> this is stressful, but then <laughs> <laughs> continue. I guess you're you're saying that that, that yep. we don't know about how it's going to turn out. I mean, yeah. it hasn't turned out very well so far. And there's arguments you said like, yes, slavery is bad, and yes, it needs to be fought. We're not saying that you don't try to stop slavery, but there needs to be some internal reform as well, or it just won't be sustainable, right? There needs it, the society needs to progress to the point that it can get there and, and the more that danny can get the people in the local area involved the more stable it'll be the more if she just rules externally and just this is what's going to happen the less stable it's going to be oh yeah and again martin hasn't finished making his argument in a novel we don't know what the ultimate message of this entire plot is and i think uh, personally i think martin himself is struggling with how he could should deal with the storyline i mean mm. i mean he basically mentioned in various interviews that marine was the hardest part i mean part of it was just 
apparently some weird timing issue with the Marinese not. But also, he has spent a lot of time writing this plot for a reason. He's obviously trying to make some sort of point, but we don't know where that ultimate point is until we get the sixth book. (laughs) Didn't some people speculate that the Marine storyline was possibly influenced by the Iraq War? That it was this colonial power or this interventionist power trying to fix a post-colonial society and just getting stuck in this quagmire of local politics and uh, trying to liberate a populace that resented them and didn't want to be liberated by them and actively uh, was antagonistic towards the West. And it was just this huge quagmire that no one could figure out how to get out of. And in many senses, we haven't gotten out of. So until geopolitics sorts itself out, Martin doesn't really know how to sort it out. (laughs) <laughs> you can see the analogy definitely, but I think the analogy is Vietnam or whatever. Like this, this issue has happened many times. Well, yeah, yeah. even before example. Vietnam, you know, yeah. India, Pakistan, you know, yeah. all of the Middle yeah. East, Africa, all these cases. I yeah. think you can see. I, I, I believe pretty strongly that that maybe it's maybe Martin is you know drawing specifically from the Iraq War, but I, I believe pretty strongly he is aware of the concept of of imperialism and he is yeah. he is intentionally trying to address it here. I yeah, think. The, well, I think the I point think so. that. I think the point where it gets complicated, though, right, is that it's still a little problematic, right? If, yes. if, yeah. if well, yeah, and and spe- specifically, if uh, you know what Daenerys, what we think we, she will ultimately do is kind of she'll make her mess here, and then she'll abandon Essos, and it was kind of just a training ground for her to practice leadership. It was just you know a tool for her ultimately to learn learn from mistakes and become a better ruler when she arrives in westeros that's that's definitely you know that, that kind of dis, you know using and discarding of of this uh eastern uh, civilization is not uh, the best thing i know and, and she is repulsed more often than not by slaver's bay and by the people of slaver's bay a lot of the description is just the various weirdness the the strange practices the fact that they eat you know, unborn puppies on sticks and things like that. It's just things <laughs> that she cannot understand. There's very, I can't think of a single uh, sympathetic or, you know, three-dimensional Marinese character, really. Because um, we just yeah, don't get that think. point I mean, of view. The Shave Pate is an interesting character, but even him, you're lacking the sympathetic side. You think he, there would be more. And that's yeah. just partly the well, timing as well. Like, how much is he going to put there? But it, that's that's where the article is the strongest, and that's why it focuses. The point of these cities, and I think everyone accepts it, is almost like these cities are just dead cities, and they're not progressing. That's fitting into the idea of, like, certain areas are just in the past. They can't go forward. Well, I think all of all of the world planetos is stuck in a in a, in a endless seemingly you know <laughs> lack of progress. So as far as that, right. I think his mistake is, and then he says like the other part of Essos is in between. It's like, oh no, I think Essos is actually superior in most ways except for slavery. I mean, again, I think it ultimately comes down to what what is the point of this? We have that we have these. I think Martin does repeat a lot of tropes and we can go even go beyond the novels you can go into the the world of, of ice and fire his descriptions of or it's not his just his descriptions also elios and linda's descriptions and i'm not sure who how much creative input each have on each they, they have on each side and for, for for the creation of all those countries like et and the China surrogate in the, in this world, or the various other associate, associate. I don't know. Is that the right <laughs> associate? <laughs> associate. Yes. Uh, country, uh, states that are not shown prominently in in in, uh, in the novels. The Jogos Nye people like that. Sort of the the fact that these people are, are almost a different race of humans altogether. That mm-hmm. was that to me came off a little bit weird. I have to say, as a Chinese person, <laughs> those guys with the giant cone heads. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like what? The... <laughs> yeah, it's like um, okay. What what are you trying to do with this? But I, yeah, I guess it's not a good look. Yeah, <laughs> in the world of Ice and Fire, at least, I got the sense that the further away from the Citadel right. it got, the more outlandish it got, simply because they sure. didn't have access to you know factual accounts. They hadn't yeah. been there. They were relying sure. on the you know the mm-hmm. tall tales of sailors and and things like that. Um, and there's the natural barrier of the uh, what are the mountains called? The Bone Mountains, which is I guess is the equivalent of the Alps, that just completely separates Ut from. Western Essos and Westeros. So they have a good exchange with the free cities. They have trade. You've got Ibanese in, in Lannisport, things like that. 
But Yiti is just this mystical city that they have no connection with, no trade with whatsoever. So, so these crazy stories can emerge out of them because, you know, there's no way to verify it. Sure. But again, it's just uh, you can make a sort of a logical case about why that's the case in which the book was constructed like that. But as a person, someone like me reading it, it still feels, oh, oh, why why does it have to be this specific way in which these people are described that way? You can say it's because Martin is trying to write like Herodotus. Uh, the further, yeah, so the further away from where he is, the the weirder things get. Sure. It's still, but again. Yeah. But Herodotus, when he was writing, he literally, that's, that's actually literally all he knows. Martin knows much better than that. Yeah, but in terms of Yi how did you feel about Yi specifically? Like, we're talking about Yi now, not the Jogos Nai. Like, they're just. Yeah, Yi yeah. Um, did you think they were particularly, like, it, it seemed like they had, they had multiple empires and all that, and they uh, had the same problem in the North, or did you think it was too simplified? Uh, I kind of laughed out loud when I read Yi <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, it reads like someone who, who has a very superficial knowledge of Chinese well, history. Well, to write but but, but what, what is he supposed to do? Like, is he supposed to hire, uh, like, hire well, Bing to come write like that part of the book? Like, <laughs> no, no, well, no. Well, why do you, why do you want to have ET there? Okay. I'm not saying, I'm not saying these things are bad. Mm. So I, I what, think that that's the important distinction to yeah. make is what's bad and what's like inaccurate. Orientalism is when it's used negatively, I think is at its worst, right? Like, or when tropes are reinforced, then people can take advantage of them. Well, uh, again, Orientalism is not, it's not even, Saeed, when he was making his case, was sort of was much more aggressive in mm. his rhetoric because he has he is making a very specific he's coming from a very specific standpoint. He's from Egypt. Uh, he was writing in 1978 at sort of the height of tensions. So there's a very specific political context to when Saeed was he was reading. Since then, Orientalism has been taken to much different places. So it depends on well, what are, what are the goals you're trying to accomplish by pointing this out? I think one possible good thing that could be one possible good positive lesson we can take from is maybe we should have more fantasy novels that are written from the perspective of, say, a Chinese person or a, a Arabic person. That's something that that's more re, that that's more understanding of those cultures. That's actually the perspective of those cultures. So that we don't all whenever we write in this genre, we don't always have to take the perspective of the West, sort of the, the Occidental. Well, to me, I think that is kind of the point. Of sure. this article, ultimately, yeah. I think that that is that is the the message, right? Is that it's just a little kind of disappointing that so many of these you know popular fantasy series are constantly like like you kind of just said, Bing, the city of like why have ET? Why have these Orientalist tropes? Why yeah. do we feel the need to present a fantasy setting in this West East way? Why is that something that we constantly feel like we have to go back to when there's yeah. obviously you know so many other ways we could construct? A, you know, a world yeah. we could build a whole world in a completely different way it doesn't have to be yeah. this way the way that ours you know has been mm-hmm. it's fantasy why do you have to have a fake china yes <laughs> but if you're going to have a fake china why well, does fake china if, have to always be big if, if let's be devil's advocate if he doesn't have fake china at all then people in china are gonna be like where the hell's the chinese people they're not in this world like i'm not i don't know well i don't know i don't know i don't know if chinese people would react i don't think chinese people would realize that there's a china there's a fake china in these books right now <laughs> anyways but i think yeah. it has to be viewed well it's two different angles i mean if you're saying there should be more chinese writers and more arabic writers it has nothing to do with martin right he's just doing no, his probably story not. probably not but his story, while being Western tradition, is now a world phenomenon. It's being read and viewed around the world. And the TV show as well, TV show in particular. So that's why maybe some people are more interested in who plays in it. It's not just a Western phenomenon anymore. It's an international one. Yeah, again, so I don't know. If, I mean, in more recent days, there has been more discussions over sort of portrayal of minorities. And that's, that's actually proof that's connected to the Orientalism yes. argument, but it's not exactly the same. Right. That's right. You don't want to mistakenly say it's the same thing. The connection is that, the, yes, there are so few works that are actually from an Eastern perspective or have Eastern characters that when they actually are produced and then they, are there ever going to be well, any roles, yeah. that, that, that's uh, race bending is felt, felt that heavily because there's so few works. If it was there more, it wouldn't be as much an issue. Or if it was within that country that is already a majority Asian, then that's one thing. But when it's like the minorities within a country never get a chance, that's when it's felt the most, right? I, I mean, I, as someone who studies Chinese history? Oh, I'm, 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 I'm. Again, this is from my perspective. Other people is going to have very different 
reactions to 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 the to fake China. To I mean, <laughs> I I even get weirded out by fake China in Avatar, for example, the TV show, not the not the movies, which is very obviously uh, <laughs> a reinforcement of colonial <laughs> yeah. attitudes. Yeah, but Avatar: The Last Airbender, even even I mean. Which is, which is a work in which they actually actively try to be more positively reinforcing sort of an Asian perspective. But even then, I still feel like the, the world they constructed, what, well, why does it have to be, what, why, why is this image there? Why, why does it ha- always have to be like that? Why is, why is Kung Fu all the time? Why is there always Kung Fu in, in Asian world? Um, I think ultimately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's marketable, partly. But, but Avatar, I mean, the whole world is Asian there. Like, what are you, what, you mean? They should have changed. Like, it, it, it's an, no, no. every character is Asian in Avatar, is it not? Like, is it just they just not yes. it properly, or well, like? Well, why did why is Tibet? Why is the Air Nation, which is uh, the the Tibet uh, SB, pretty much? Well, why are there certain repeating uh, motifs that I see in movies, like uh, with Seven Years in the Bed and stuff like that, also in this repeated in this? Why, why, why paint in this this very specific image over the bed? Again, it's, it's not that easy to explain why I feel this way. It's mm. it's not it's almost not so much a very logical. Yes, this is the way. It, 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 this is this. This is this. Hence, I should I should be. It's it's more of a emotional. It's also more of an emotional reaction. But yeah, this that's my perspective. Other people will feel very differently. Other other people have very different experience to these kind of works and. This kind of person. even other Chinese people could have very different perspectives. Mm. So I, I'm sort of done with the, my whole spiel. So sorry. <laughs> what about you, Bill? We feel like we've left you out as the, the token yeah, sorry. Western white person on the West Coast. <laughs> no, I, I think you guys make a lot of good points. Uh, I I do wonder, you know, what kind of stereotypes does um, Asia have about? white people mm. you know we we see a lot of white views of of asia but how how about the other direction you know mm. if well, we did get an an essos uh pov what would they say about westeros mm. you know would they have similar you know thoughts about you know here all those white people they're just power mad and they're you know they just like to conquer everybody and which isn't always true you know, we see a lot of examples of that not being true. On know? the viewpoint of like Jorah the Andal, the way people treat Jorah, right, or view mm-hmm. him, I think you see a bit of it. And and don't they view the West as backwards? Well, they they make fun of him because he wears armor. They they think that's uh, <laughs> right. feminine to wear armor to not fight fight naked, or it's it's uh, <laughs> weak. And I think one captain, one Selsword captain, calls it a senseless savage land, and they yeah. call it the, the Sunset Kingdoms. And I think uh, Jorah describes. Carl Drogo is not regarding Westeros as any anything more than a collection of rocks out in the middle of the ocean, not worth not worth sailing across. Yeah. We get a few insights into the sort of the low regard that some of the West some of the Easterners regard the Westeros as. Yeah, to go back to your yeah, I think a point you made early on. I mean, I do think there are plenty of cases where Essos is kind of presented with that moral cultural kind of high ground uh, compared mm-hmm. to Westeros. Um, you know, Westeros. You know, we get plenty of insight on all the ways that it is deficient. Uh, I think that's mm-hmm. true. But I think ultimately, you know, it's that same point uh, that Bing has, has you know, come back to is this this idea that, that that's not necessarily the problem. It's not that, you know, the West is always great and the East is always bad, but it's that the West is is us and the East is other. The East is mm. is unfamiliar, um, ultimately. And I think that I think you can make the case, I guess, like where I ultimately fall on this article is that I do think it's, I think I mentioned before, I do think it's a kind of a pretty shallow analysis. I feel like it's didn't go mm-hmm. as in depth on, you know, post-colonial thought as it could have. I don't mm. think it went as de- in depth in the books uh, as it could have. It could have, you know, examined things like Dorne, like we talked about more thoroughly, but I do like that it's presenting the argument. Uh, I don't agree with every piece of it, but I like having these kinds of discussions about it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, even yeah. when I was reading this uh, and, and to be fair, it's been a long time since I've read it. A Dance with Dragons, but I was like constructing this idea in my head of uh, Quentin having his own kind of like heart of darkness experience where like <laughs> Daenerys is Colonel Kurtz and all this stuff. And I wanted to kind of explore that more. Like, I don't know. I just like <laughs> thinking about uh, thinking about it in those terms and kind of examining these things. Like, I think you could think, too, I think there's a lot you could write about the fact that Westeros itself is obviously heavily colonized. Right. You know, it started out as the Children of the Forest mm-hmm. and the first man. Yes came and then the andals came and it was a lot more magical down. back then too and then it was yeah. wiped out right it was it... and that was an east west uh you know obviously kind of colonization that happened it's a little different right you know our understanding of imperialism and colonization is kind of a more 
um, kind of post-enlightenment idea, you know, age of exploration idea. But still, there's a lot of, you know, different uh, different mm-hmm. uh, interesting avenues, I think, that could be advanced uh, along this line. Yeah, and, and it, it does to some extent dispute the notion that the West is this unified concept or this homogenous group when you have the Northerners, the, the, the blood of the first man strongly um, feuding with the Andals, the Roynar, this, you know, you could argue that the people in uh, King's Landing have much more in common with the people of the free cities than they do with the Northerners or the Wildlings. And the, the Northerners have much more in common with the Wildlings uh, than the people of the Southern Kingdoms. And the, the people of Dawn have much more in common with the people of Lys and Tyrosh than they do with the people above, you know, in the Southern and the Northern Kingdoms. So, um, yeah, yeah this idea well. of the West, because uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess in in uh, Europe, you could say the idea of the West wasn't really cemented until I don't know the Crusades, maybe when they were united under under Christendom, and maybe maybe the the Greeks had as much as much trade with people in the Middle East as they did with the Spanish. You know, it wasn't. These are sort of new, more recent concepts that have developed through um, through I don't know politics and religion, and they were you know through natural tribal politics. I always just kind of find it hilarious in which fantasy how much fantasy just sort of reinforces history i mean in martin's case it's understandable because actually is taking he himself actively acknowledges that he is taking elements from history that he is actually sort of writing fake history at some points mm-hmm. but you see like robert jordan uh lord of the ring series with tolkien in which they have you, you're you're writing fantasy, but there's so much you used to see so much Western history in your fantasy world. It's again, it's not a bad thing. High fantasy is a product of the last hundred years, right? And they're mm-hmm. all in this. This is what high fantasy is, but there could be other fantasy as well, as you're saying, right? Yeah. it's so tied mm-hmm. to history. Try some new stuff. <laughs> go, cr- like, go crazy. <laughs> go 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 completely yeah. wacko. I will say this, though, um, kind of offering a counterpoint. I think ultimately yeah. it's really hard, obviously, to write outside of what you know. You know, yeah. I think that every oh, every yes. type of writing will obviously draw on some kind of experience. And I think, too, if if uh, if an author was brilliant enough to construct a setting that was totally alien, it probably wouldn't resonate with any kind of audience because they would have no touchstone. Right. They wouldn't be able to kind of interpret or understand like if we had a fantasy written by an alien we probably wouldn't be able to appreciate it probably <laughs> would probably wouldn't sell very well uh so that's the kind of you know other side of it but i think what ultimately the point is like there should be more people uh hopefully successfully writing fantasy right that's the that's the great you know mm-hmm. thing that we would like to see i think ultimately yeah. more perspectives well, yeah different voices that can't be a bad thing i think again ultimately this article fails i think ne- the tv show is much worse and much more actively offensive yeah. <laughs> it, what they're trying to do with, with Essos and Dorn than the book ever does. I think the the books, they, it makes me raise my eyebrows a few times and, okay, why? Okay, it's this again. And that's that's the most it got out of me in regard with this problem. The, the TV actively is kind of repulsive to me at times. The whole so what you, storyline, for example. Yeah, go ahead. That's awful. But, you know, I, I just do want to throw this out there. Um, yeah. Duncan mentioned earlier, we really don't really get a perspective from Essos that's truly sympathetic or truly like nuanced or three dimensional. I don't think we're really doing the TV show either, but it at least tries, I guess, with uh, Missande and uh, and Grey Worm, right? It tries. It, at the, least, right? Uh, well, but I think it, they frame it in a very Western perspective. Yeah, I think I that's never, true. Yeah. I never, I never see those these two characters as actually like an actual, an other. Uh, well, I mean, I also say they're sympathetic characters from Esso. I just say Slaver's Bay uh, is the where that's a little bit low on them. Otherwise, I think they're there. Well, Grey Woman and Missandei are certainly sympathetic, but they worship Danny. They consider themselves yeah, rescued exactly. by yeah. by Danny yeah. from the horrors of of. Uh, they were Bay. civilized, and now they are. Uh, yeah, right. They're yeah. They're recovering. They're much- they're much more like um, like slaves from the American South than like um, yeah they were dragged know, like, to like being Bay. they're not even from there yeah. right they were taken there and, and now they're making the best of their life that they can do yeah and I think that they're look, look slavery is a bad thing but you can have very nuanced discussions about slavery if you especially you're taking the way in which slavery is in this context which is slavery it's not but the writers of the TV show especially is taking talking about slavery in a very much American history way. Yes, right. Which, mm-hmm. yeah. which it's and and they they 
hire actors specifically to make that point yeah, <laughs> even sure. even more specific like we can't see at most of the Danny soldiers except for Grey Worm and but almost every single slave character in the show is portrayed by a black actor why is that yeah, because specifically that, the slaves are from all all of Essos, all background, yeah. right? So they, no, the Thraki don't make limits. By the way, it's the Thraki that catch yeah. them. Because he was trying to figure out... There's two criticisms of the article. One is Orientalism applied, but the second is just understanding of the works. There's yeah. times where he's just like, well, how do, how do these guys get slaves? Well, did the Thraki bring them over? There's a whole network there. Now, whether that network is sustainable or reliable is one thing, but there is an explanation that the Thraki bring them there, and then they're sold and trained and sent to the rest of Essos. It's a worldwide trade that has been now affected by Danny, and that's why... They're feeling the repercussions of the rest of Essos. Some positives, but they're aware of what's going on. Yeah, um, that that's a problem. Again, books go much better, does this much, well, I don't know better, but goes in, does in much more nuanced fashion. Um, and as in which you, I can at least say, okay, Martin is trying to engage with a problem. Mm-hmm. If it, uh, he's trying to engage with an issue. TV show is just, I'm, we're taking stuff that we know and just putting it out there that in in the most entertaining way possible so that people that a specifically american audience can have a much closer appreciation of it which again okay so they're trying to sell a tv show that's what they want to do okay that's fine but but it's not just it's not just active trying to sell a tv show it's just the the people who made the show are they don't know any better or admired in orientalism like lee martin's knows what orientalism is whether yeah. he's still affected by it or not, at least he's in. He knows what it is, and his historic experiences. Like the people making the show, come on, they probably don't even know what it is, right? So it's, they're more in line with with the tropes. I have, I don't know Dan D and D that well enough to be able to say if they know this or not. <laughs> I'm not the dragon demands. I'm not yeah. going to <laughs> psychoanalyze them <laughs> and blame them for anything. <laughs> Not just them, but of course they have more power yeah. on it, right? But like the overall uh, whoever's making the show. Well, I get, and again, Hollywood, I don't know. Right? Well, yeah, well, it's Hollywood. Who, yeah. who knows who's that makes the ultimate decision? I can just imagine the casting director. All right, a slave. We need a bunch of slaves. This is the description of of who we need, and that's what the casting call is, and that's how simply it's done. It's just there's these particular models, these particular types of characters that they need to. Yeah, so it's all ingrained in the in the production itself. The unfortunate thing, right, is you would think that a, a massive kind of production would have a little more awareness and nuance to it than like one old white guy in Arizona uh, <laughs> writing stuff or in New Mexico writing stuff. Uh, well, it's the Hollywood thing, right? That's just yeah. a pervasive, long, long, big problem. I'm going to throw out like another interesting or at least point that was interesting to me that I thought that might be worth further investigation, which is that I, the only modern example in, in this world that I can think of of modern, quote unquote, example of a, of a successful uh colonization is the uh targaryen colonization of westeros mm. that's the only only case i can think of where it actually you know worked out quote unquote it was successful and they actually were able to in- institute a new regime it's not as though they completely changed the civilization but it's the, the only one i can think of where it seems like they got they they dug in and they they made it work mm-hmm. is it so much a colonization and they, they weren't like taking this land and then sending the resources back over Essos or something, they committed to coming to live here, right? They became part of the Westeros. And there, there wasn't that many. It wasn't like Westeros was overflown with, with Valyrians, right? It was actually just a very <laughs> small elite perched on top of the existing Andal tradition. And that's there was a bit of a, like, in, this, in the greens and the blacks, right? That was the Andal nobility was kind of, like, reasserting itself at that point. Mm. And, it reminds me of the Mongols for for almost like you know because the Mongols weren't slowly the overflow of China right it was only a certain amount of people that got assimilated right mm. yeah I mean the Valer- the Valerians are interesting because the Valerians are almost like you know worshipped they're thought of as this this nation of gods that we we got the you know the Westeros you got the last few skyons of but um you know they're not like they're not. They don't, I guess they're a, they're a destroyed civilization, so they might fold into that Orientalist myth. But yeah, that was that was considered. I guess maybe the equivalent would be like the Roman Empire, the fall of the Roman Empire. This this great civilization mm-hmm. that once ruled all of Essos, and at that point it was a great, you know, united realm, a united civilization, the freehold that that uh, eventually collapsed. It flew too close to the sun, maybe. But the mythology of Valeria is interesting to situate in the in the otherwise um, exoticization and and demonization of the East. Mm-hmm. He mentions the stereotyping of the uh, Middle East and uh, transitioning from the nomadic warrior to the, to, the, to the terrorist figure. 
And I was wondering if you could see that reflected in A Song of Ice and Fire. In early books, we get the Dothraki horseback warriors, and then um, in Meereen, we get the Sons of the Harpy, just this sort of sporadic uh, threat that appears, does great violence, and then disappears back into the woodwork. About a terror is, I mean, the, the Dothraki are much more like a stereotypical portrayal of a horde people, mm. which again, that their people think that people horse warriors have to be people who live nomadic lifestyle in the in the steppes of Eurasia have to act and behave in a certain specific way, and not all horde peoples are alike. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, not the same as the Huns, yeah, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, the sons of the harpy, they, they, they seem yeah. to be enacting a, a campaign of, you know, lacking numbers and lacking resources, but ruling through fear, making the, the unsullied afraid to walk alone at night and, uh, I guess, turning the pressure cooker up on, on Danny, um, making Maybe. her make mistakes. Maybe. Um, again, I don't, again, I don't know exactly where Martin is drawing his inspiration, um, that could be it, or it could be just going back to even older tropes of like the Hashashin, mm. stuff like that. So yeah. I don't know. I think you could. I think you could make uh, you know a lot of other cases of just kind of resistant groups to any any you know um, situation of of colonization. I'm sure that there's a lot of connections you could make to the the specific sons of the harpy. But I think. I think it's worth, you know, asking the question, obviously, you know, given uh, George R. R. Martin's perspective, if he's specifically drawing on a, like the modern understanding of what a terrorist is. Um, I think it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it might be it. I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's like definitively not. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I can't go into Martin's head. Try though. the question, right? We can try. The, the, we can the guess. Modern, the difference is in, in modern terrorism is that the, the targets are civilians. Far more than in the past, where it would be more the military. Like, are the harpy targeting civilians, or are they targeting unsullied? Mm. They're doing both, I guess. I, I have to look at that in detail. But I, I think it still has to be kept in mind because Martin's been writing for such a long time. But while he may draw upon what happened later, that wasn't the impetus for writing this. Yeah, again, so it, this novel has been written for such a long time that it's very possible that is that the, what. The ideas that Martin originally had or was inspired by have now since changed, and he has and the story has morphed. Um, and again, that's another sort of contextual thing that's never really covered. Uh, well, it's treated article. as an end product, right? It's it's not over, right? So we yeah. don't, yeah, we can't ultimately judge what happens in Slavery's Bay until it's over. But to what it, yeah. you can you can still make interim decisions. Yeah, I mean, you can point out you can point out that there's there's this and this and that that sort of repeating images, or yeah. that repeating cliches. But uh, I, I think more the point that Hardy is trying to make is these this sort of evolving stereotype that this is what it was at the beginning of the 20th century and this yeah. is what it became towards the end of the 20th sure. century, and that is possibly uh, manifested in Martin's work, but. I mean, I guess it's more the TV show that he's looking right. at. So, Duncan, were you surprised to see that another Australian academic that apparently lives really near to you <laughs> writing about the yeah. Game of Thrones? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, never, I've never heard of him. I think uh, I've been to Deakin Uni a few times, um, but I've never run into him. I, I, I think he seems to be in a different department. I don't think he necessarily looks at TV and, and movies as much, which is more my area. But, uh, yeah, maybe one day I'll, I'll run into him and I'll, I'll ask him if he's uh, – Gonna gonna read the winds of winter. <laughs> it's definitely a See compelling how. case to be made that it's the nexus of uh, you know academic thought on these these books is, is that city. So it's a case to be made. <laughs> yeah, you guys should have a conference. Did you already have a conference or something? Like, did you have a Game of Thrones conference or something? One of the no. Uh, me and Michael went to ThronesCon. So I wouldn't call it an academic conference. It was more <laughs> just cosplay and stuff. But um. But there is a, I think there's like a thing on Facebook. It's like Martin Studies or something, which I'm a, which I've joined, and I think they're trying to put together a conference. I think Elio and Linda are a part of that, so that'd be cool to see one day. I think that yeah, I think the text is rich enough that you can read all these interesting things into it, history and sociology and all that. Sure. Yeah, I'm looking up uh, Dr. Matt Hardy's staff profile at Deakin. Uh, he's a senior lecturer in Middle East Studies, and his speciality is in modern politics. Specifically, transitional power in Libya, armed intervention in the Middle East, peacekeeping and the use of force, media depiction of the Middle East and violence. That's, uh, I guess, where the Game of Thrones come in. Mm. And, yeah. Um, so he is uh, he is more of a political scientist, I guess? Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. 
you know what is surprising is that he didn't talk about World of Ice and Fire. You think he would have talked about it given what he was going through? Like, with, I like, think this was published yard. in uh, 2015. I think it was. Yeah. Oh, is it that? Yeah. Is it that old? Yeah. Yeah. That's also it. Mentions like it. It talks about the fourth season having having finished and the the fifth season uh, starting in the show. So it, it to be clear. Oh wow! He didn't even get the phone. Yeah, I didn't see that. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> it doesn't have there. the full full context that we do. To be fair. Yeah. So what is the International Journal of Arts and Sciences? Is that where's that based out of? Could be anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Let me see. International Journal of Arts and Sciences. So I just looked it up. Actually, the World of Ice and Fire came out in 2014. How has time passed this fast? Why do we not have yeah. six books? Come on. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> but, good but question. It was late 2014, wasn't it? Wasn't it fall 2014? October. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So depending on when the article was sent for publication, it might have already been finalized. It could That's be true. months later when it was actually. It's a good question. When it was actually finalized, it doesn't have a date on it, does it? It just has a 2015. I'm just annoyed now. I've been waiting. We were so <laughs> excited for World of Ice and Fire, but I don't actually think I've, I've read all of it. <laughs> I don't think anyone has read all of it. You're not supposed to read it front to cover the back cover. You just jump around and. and I think I skipped most of the Targaryen stuff. I think I tried to read through the whole thing and fell asleep yeah. somewhere towards. Uh, well, then you have a usable pillow. Further it's... east you got, I I got sleepier. Although I the Targaryen I... part was good actually because I because I actually figured out like who was who. Like before that, I, I never had a good handle of their dynasty. Ironically, I actually really loved all the Essos stuff, even though it was crazy. <laughs> just, I just, it was like the part of the world we'd visited the least, and it was fun just to hear him like, just write all of this crazy stuff that wouldn't have any repercussions because we're never actually going there. It just invented this whole conspiracy about these fish people that were like mating <laughs> humans, and there's all these like alien relics everywhere. It just, just seemed like he he went a bit crazy because he, he could. Well, we have Fire and Blood coming out uh, in what, November. November. Good news for you, Duncan. All that Targaryen stuff you haven't read will be repackaged. In yeah. Oh, good. Install. I was just waiting for this one. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for the definitive edition. More in-depth. Okay. Thank you, guys. Is that all? Or is there any final comments <laughs> before we wrap up? I think uh, yeah. it's been fun. The advantage of people writing these articles is it gives you something to discuss in a more structured format. At least that you can something you can criticize or agree with. I agree. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think I agree to, with the essay to the extent that he, uh, Martin is relying on a lot of those tropes unconsciously or subconsciously, and he's challenging some of them, but he's also, um, he's sort of yeah, indulging in, in them a little bit. But I think it'll be interesting to see how it turns out, like how he resolves a lot of these conflicts, and I'll sort of reserve my judgment until then. Yeah, like I was saying before, I think the kind of pr- part where it really becomes deeply problematic is that part where... Daenerys dis- discards Essos as kind of like her training ground, and I think that we haven't seen yet what that looks like uh, mm. yet in the in the in the books. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for joining me, guys. Hey. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank and you. Uh, Thank you. to our listeners out there, check us out on podcastoficeandfire.com, on Twitter, Facebook, and even DeviantArt. And we shall see you next time. Thank you. Cool. I guess I'll put a, a link up to the article with the episode. Yeah. We talked about it. Sorry if I talked over people and Dr. Dominic oh, was good. too much. That yeah. shouldn't be too hard. We all got what we wanted to say. The point that you made, Bill, was interesting because how the, how does the East view the West? I mean, like you mm-hmm. you yourself, you view a lot of anime, right? Like, don't don't you see right. like how maybe some anime views the West and the way people are portrayed there? Yeah, but, kind of the overriding uh, stereotype of Americans in anime is that we are loud, uh, we're all blonde, we're kind of annoying. They have giant noses. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Where did they get I, all I, this from? What? It's crazy. Uh, television mostly. Oh, we all have guns. You know, we're. <laughs> Zach was cleaning out his gun. That, that's what was that, that sound was. <laughs> of course. Cleaning your uh-huh. podcast. Of course. Um, it, yes. If you've ever seen uh, Cowboy Bebop, <laughs> yeah. they have that they have that TV show, which is like oh, the yeah. Hunter TV yeah, show, yeah. where the the people the 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 leather and the cowboy outfits shooting their guns around. That's sort of the stereotype of Americans. Yeah. Like, I want to say this: this is Orientalism is not just a Western problem.
within Chinese literature, within Japanese literature slash TV, you see the same problems. There's also others in 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 those different places as well. And to some extent, society relied on the otherism. That's how mm-hmm. societies organize themselves, and, and they have an other, and it's it just how it's used is the problem, right? And, and, and the historic uses of it, and how it can be used I, I presently. I think it's just sort of general human nature. Yeah. We, just com- we just take what we know and we compartmentalize it, and that's how we associate with things that we aren't immediately familiar with. Good old binary thinking. If you're aware of it, you could try to fix it to what to the degree that it can be in, in media and that kind of stuff. Challenge it, and that's the point of it. Well, the last thing I forgot to mention is uh, I remember at some point when they are in uh, Marine, I think uh, they're talking about Dorn, or, or when uh, Quinton shows up. Resnak, was it Resnak? More Re- Resnak. He's like, oh, I have heard of this place, Dorn. Is it far away? Is this, this desertly wasteland or something? And it was kind of interesting uh-huh. to see like their point of view on Dorn. It's just it's so much distance between the areas, right? Right. Yeah, that was another interesting thing about the essay that, like, uh, some of the uh, it seems like a medieval society, but a lot of the naval technology mm. seems equivalent to like 16th or 17th or even 18th century Europe. Yeah, the maesters as well. The fact that they're secular and not, uh, although I mean, mm. what are you supposed to say that they should be religious? Martin made a change from history, right? Yeah, if it was history, they would be part of the church in this kind of concept, but they're not. Well, there's a difference, right? Isn't that good <laughs> to have a difference? The is, not a- is it good? Is it not good? Bad? I don't know. Um, it's different. Yeah, it's different that's, from how. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, because he picks some things from history and then he changes other things. Yeah. So it's like, are you a historical yeah. allegory, or are you just the whole point of the article is when it refers to Roz, and then it's like Roz traveled really quickly. I'm like, that's the TV oh, yeah, show. I forgot that's that absolutely TV show. <laughs> yeah, that's the ab- whole point of it. <laughs> that's absolutely yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much this person read the books. It's a superficial understanding of the books. Yes, there are things we can talk about when we have, but the book's knowledge is a bit superficial, I think. Well, he might have even, I mean, does he even quote the book? He might have only been talking about the, the show. He he said, talk, I guess he, he says, the, says the fiction. Yeah. He says the fiction of George R. R. Martin, but uh, mm. I think he's engaging with the show because it's so widespread. It's yeah, so he, popular. So it's a popular representation. I guess. I give him credit for having read the books. It's like I think he knew enough of it that he had to have read the books. He is citing. He is. Uh, no, those are not citing the books. Hmm. He cites. Uh, he cites Game of Thrones and Storm of Swords. Does he cite? Uh, I thought I saw Dance of Dragons citation somewhere. This is peak academics. Uh, well, I love how we we started off by scrutinizing his his staff page, and then we looked at the conference to see if that was legit. No, this is peak. Okay, no. So I found a footnote. He's citing the Feast of Crows, talking mm. about uh, talking about slavery. Mm. In Westeros, the only notable practice of slavery is in the Iron Islands, where the captured straws are used as laborers in fields. Okay. Ah, okay. Yeah, this is this is peak academic academia. So uh, we should stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> it is an interesting point. I think the point that that yes, the the world is a little bit more advanced than what you would think. Or it's a later in the timeline in some sense. Like the technology is a weird mix of things. Well, the whole idea, though, like the idea of being like it's been like this for eight thousand years. People say, "Well, is that even realistic that it'd be like this for eight thousand years?" And then they're like, "Well, then it came out that oh, it hasn't been eight thousand years. It's actually something shorter." Mm. That's what the Masters think. <clears throat> it's actually only been ten days. <laughs> <laughs> this weird uh, time progression. Hmm. Okay. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and, uh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Send me a copy as well. So you can okay. It, uh, don't see anything else. So yeah, that was fun. Spirited yeah, conversation. Right. Yeah. Duncan, you should totally uh, try to find Matt Hardy and see. <laughs> like, yeah, podcast of Ice and Fire community sends its regard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm sure he's a lovely person. He just didn't, he's just not as obsessed as we are. Yeah. <laughs> all right guys all right all right yeah all right nice Bye. chatting see you later yep i've seen a lot of discussions of this journal people actively asking if it's a scam <laughs> <laughs> uh the uh, conference that they hold that. is a scam or not so which the international 
the, the in the International Journal of Arts and Science. Apparently, they they hold this a conference of various. Oh yeah, different in, in September, panels. November. There was a bunch of them. What? Yeah, like, yeah, and they go to like different parts of the world, and people are wondering. Well, some this person who went to a conference said it's not a scam, and apparently it's pretty valuable. It's truly international. You get to meet a lot of different people. Depends on uh, what the registration is. Yeah, <laughs> three hundred dollars to register for this conference. Yeah, that's I think that's the part that it's a little unprofessional though. So mm-hmm. there's that. Uh, I think I think it's one of like those like huge conferences that a bunch of people can apply and essentially use this as an as an excuse to go on vacation. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is like half of half of academic conferences are that. So. Yeah. I can't really say this one is that much worse than the others. Uh, the journal itself, I don't know how prestigious it is, but hey, it's out there. It's not a scam. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see that thread saying, "Is it a scam?" <laughs> they look legit enough. I have seen real scams. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to publish or perish. Right. Yeah. Hey. Okay. Um, it's a hot the topic. National Journal of Ice and Fire. <laughs> hey, there they should be one. It's popular enough of a topic that it's that you could you could legitimately get away with doing one. Yeah, I mean the journal you would make would be one just uh, the whole area of fantasy analysis, or whatever, and then you'd have yeah. different being analyzed in it or something. But yeah. Anyways, but if you if you search like an academic library, you'll find plenty of stuff on a song of ice and fire. Yeah, maybe I just yeah haven't looked hard enough in this topic. <laughs>